Well, welcome to Sunday School, everybody. We are continuing our uh, short bios of different uh, American theologians or American influencers in uh, Christianity. I am going to speak today on B.B. Uh, Warfield. B the first B stands for Benjamin. Second B is Breckenridge, as you would expect most people to be named. Uh, we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. But B.B. Warfield, yes, that's going to be our topic for today. I hope uh, you find it interesting. I found it interesting, but that doesn't mean anything because people that like theology are usually quite strange anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a disease. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get, uh, we'll get going on this. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that we are able to spend time thinking about men you have used to advance your kingdom. We pray for uh, wisdom as we talk on these things, that we might even uh, be able to glean something from it uh, and apply it to our own lives. We pray for uh, worship today, that we will be, our hearts will be ready for it, that our hearts will be humbled and um, that we quickly uh, seek your forgiveness for our sins, that we might be clean in your house. And Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, B.B. Warfield. Just to see, uh, how many have heard of B.B. Warfield? All right, I see a few hands. Okay, good. Uh, he was born in 1851. And uh, if, if, my, uh, if my history serves me right, uh, Civil War was, was, a, was a coming, right? What are the, what are the uh, four years of the Civil War? Thank you. I thought so. <laughs> All right. So he was born uh, just about 10 years before that. And he is, uh, so that's, that's going to be significant in his life um, because uh, the Presbyterian uh, history has always been a, a history of trying to figure out what to do with culture. Um, they have always struggled over it. And part of that struggle, at least in uh, Warfield's life, uh, particularly when he ends up at Princeton, is to think about what to do about, uh, about the black-white uh, divide. So we'll get to that in a minute. He uh, did end up being a professor at uh, Princeton. He was a professor of systematic theology uh, from 1887 to 1921. About 34 years of service at Princeton uh, and he was called, and maybe some of you have heard about this, he was called the Lion of Princeton. Has anyone ever heard that? The Lion of Princeton. And so we're going to talk about that as well. He reviewed, he was a big book reviewer, uh, long, long before, who's that guy online that became, was that? Challies, yeah. Except for, uh, 
I don't know if you guys have heard of Challies. What, what's his first name? Tim Challies, who reviewed books, and then he reviewed them so well they decided to make him a pastor. Um, but uh, B.B. Warfield actually uh, got degrees and things like that. But B.B. Uh, Warfield worked on uh, reviews quite a bit, and he had reviewed over 800 books by the time he was done, um, and reviewed them in the Princeton Journal. His family uh, were kind of, uh, today we would call them privileged. They're part of the, uh, uh, if we could call it, uh, the American aristocracy. They, they were well-established, uh, well um, well-known, um, had a lot of money. His grandfather was Robert Breckenridge. He was a politician who, after the death of one of his children, uh, turned to the Lord and uh, became a theologian as well. Also very interesting about uh, Robert Breckenridge, his family, B.B. Uh, Warfield's family comes from Kentucky. You got to remember this is, Civil War is, uh, has happened uh, in, the six, in the 60s, 1860s, and um, Robert Breckenridge, his grandfather, was a Union sympathizer, um, did not uh, agree with what was going on in the South, but found himself in the South, uh, so to speak. So, B.B. Uh, Warfield ended up studying science and math at Princeton. He was a valedictorian. He uh, went to Europe for a little while and then decided to enter the ministry. Uh, Back in those days, you had people that were, uh, if you were wealthy in America, you would end up spending time in Europe for studies, uh, either studies or some kind of way of being, um, if I can put it this way, uh, cre uh, they wanted you to be civilized, and oftentimes America didn't seem civilized enough, so they sent their kids to Europe to learn how to be civilized, I guess. Um, so when he went over there, he, uh, the Lord had worked in his heart, and he decided he was going to enter the ministry, which brought him back to America, back to Princeton. When he was at Princeton, he uh, met Annie Kincaid. Um, after graduation from Princeton, they got married. Now this is where it kind of gets interesting with old B.B. Warfield. Um, you have to understand, this is a guy that grew up in privilege, uh, and there's nothing wrong with privilege. If you're privileged, it's, uh, you're, uh, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Give up all <laughs> but they, uh, But he had a lot of, um, he was established well and with his family and all these sort of things, and he met Annie, and after they got married, they went to Europe again for a, just like a theologian, uh, for a honeymoon slash working on some classes in Europe, uh, theological classes. That may have been a red flag for Annie. But anyway, uh, they, were, they found themselves walking in a forest one day in Europe. This is in Germany, in Leipzig. 
And uh, is this thing still okay? I moved my glasses. I shouldn't have done that. Okay. Uh, so they're walking in a in this forest, and all of a sudden it starts raining really hard, and these it starts thundering and lightning like crazy. And for whatever reason, that just freaked Annie out, if I can put it that way. But not just, she wasn't just scared, it triggered something inside her that would become um, dehabilitating for her. She could, not, uh, she could not get over that experience. And this is where it's very confusing for a lot of people that are studying B.B. Uh, Warfield. I was looking at a, a scholar who kind of dedicated most of his scholarship to uh, studying uh, Warfield in his time, and he could not reconcile what may have happened there. Um, it is not normal, right, for someone to go over the deep end over a thunderstorm in the woods, but she just could not recover from it. Uh, she stopped talking for a while, then she started talking again, but she just wouldn't leave the house, and then eventually she wouldn't leave her bed. Um, and this was the the normal life of Warfield after that. They returned to, uh, to Princeton. That's where, that's where B.B. Uh, Warfield began his, his teaching career, 34 years of teaching. He, um, you have to remember, Princeton was where uh, Charles Hodge was. Everyone remember Charles Hodge? Big name in the reform world, wrote a systematic theology, tended to write Latin in it and then not tell you what it meant. Very cruel, cruel man. Uh, but he, uh, he had a son named Archbold Alexander uh, Hodge. He named his son after his favorite uh, uh, professor. And um, Archbold Alexander Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, uh, became a professor at Princeton, and then B.B. Warfield came and took his place after he retired. A.A. Hodge was a very affable kind of guy. Uh, he loved having students at his house. Uh, he would have uh, something called a fireside chat at his house. Does that sound familiar, young men? Yes. And so every Sunday, he would have students come uh, according to their free will, of course, uh, as much as you know you can as a reformed person. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he would have the students come to his house, and they would uh, and they would listen to him. It was kind of a lecture, but it was kind of steered towards you know their heart as well. But um, and his house was just always open. There was kids running through his house a lot, and these are the Princetonians you know, professors of Princeton, the old Princeton that we, I'll tell, explain what that means in a bit. But, um, and that was the way he was. That was just, his house was just filled with life all the time. When A.A. Hodge retired, um, they moved away and B.B. Warfield bought his house, or at least took over his house. That was unclear. Uh, it may have been that Princeton just always has had money and just gave people houses. Uh, they do it to this day. Princeton University, if you get a professorship there, they provide you with a house. They provide you with incredible amounts of money. 
You just have to sell your soul to teach there. But anyway, um, there's always temporary advantages of selling your soul. They're just temporary. So anyway, B.B. Uh, Warfield took over that house, and with, her, with his wife being basic, almost an invalid after a while, where she, he, had to, he had to wash her, he had to take care of uh, every part of her bodily functions, he had to feed her. She was just laying in bed, and all of this from that incident in Germany. He would teach his lectures to his students, and then as soon as he was done teaching, uh, he would leave the classroom, shut the door, go to his house, take care of his wife. Um, it, so he, I was kind of trying to show a, this comparison uh, with A.A. A. Hodge. He now had A.A. A. Hodge's house. They used to be filled with life. Students were welcome there at any time. They'd come in and out. There was all this life there. And then when B.B. Warfield moved in, it was a house of death. <laughs> it was like a house of depression. It was, I'm going back to help my wife. No one came. Students certainly didn't come in here in that place. There were no children, of course, because his wife uh, was so, um, her mental state was so altered that they didn't even have children. And so you can see there's this dark side of B.B. Warfield's life. This did provide for him time to write. And he wrote a lot. If you... Uh, if you look at some of those, well, I don't know, are there Christian bookstores anymore? <laughs> if there are, I'm sure there's no B.B. Warfield in them. But uh, if you look online, you'll see that you can buy B.B. Warfield's works. Um, and uh, it's a lot. And he sat and wrote and had the time to do that, which was a blessing for many people uh, but this doesn't, this doesn't mean he didn't have a heart for students. Um, he wrote a book entitled The Theological Life of, a seminar, of the Seminary Student. Some people still use that book in their seminaries. Um, or at least they should. Uh, this book was designed to cause the seminary student to look inward, challenging him to uh, think about his spiritual life as he goes to seminary. Um, I kind of have been known to have an attitude about seminary students uh, because <laughs> they just, it's, uh, they have a tendency to make theology something that is in the mind, but oftentimes not in the heart. Uh, they, they look at their theological work as a professional work, but not a work that enters the heart. I was reminded of this. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have Grand Canyon stories after, uh, after all this. Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. Um, so anyway, uh, I was in the Grand Canyon. That's where I've been for the last two weeks. And, uh, and I had, there was, a, there was several seminary students with us who were working on their PhD. And there was this guy, he was just, he has a blog, and if you have a blog, then don't go to seminary. Don't go in the ministry. <laughs> That's terrible, I shouldn't say that. But I mean, he had this, he brought his camera with him, and he was just constantly setting it up. Everywhere we went, he would set it up, and he would start doing his little talks and everything, 
which he couldn't even send out because we were in the middle of a canyon, so he had to save them, and he's going to upload them later. Can't wait for that. So anyway, uh, we get out of the canyon, and he starts, and, and there's other humans around again. And we, and we, you know, you're sitting down, you're waiting for this, for this airplane to take you away, and there's people around who are waiting for the airplane as well. And so he starts talking to this lady. And he starts trying to witness to her in about the worst possible way. He starts with the bait and switch and say, hey, how you doing? How was your trip? You know? And she's like, oh, it was good. He says, oh, I just love to hear about your trip. How did it go? And he acts like he wants to hear about her trip. But he didn't because he switched her around and then he goes, you know, you know there's, there's judgment. You know, if you were to die in the canyon, where would you go? And I was like, oh, no, really? And there's nothing wrong with witnessing, but be a human about it. You know, don't bait and switch and then have this weird voice uh, like he was announcing it to the world, you know, this, this weird way of witnessing to this, this woman. She says, why are you proselytizing to me? I thought you wanted to know about my trip. And they were just, and then it got really weird. Uh, so, of course, I stayed and watched. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, he, he tried to continue on. She yelled at him, and then he asked her about her trip again, and then she went, uh, it was just the most awkward moment. But it was all, it seemed like it was a show, because it didn't seem like witnessing or I care about this woman. It seemed like I want people to know I am, I am sharing the gospel with this woman. And what happens is, oftentimes, with people that are studying in the theological world, everything becomes a show. It's a show that I got a degree. It's a show that I am doing this wonderful thing right now through witnessing. It is, and so what Warfield was concerned about, even back in the 1800s, that young men are putting on a show. And I suppose we do that with theology, don't we? Even if we're not in seminary. We, uh, when we know that there are problems in our heart, we put on a show with theology to try and make people believe that we really are these wonderful people when we really are struggling at home. Right? But this uh, particular book, this theological life for, of seminary student, was actually an address he gave in 1911 where uh, Princeton was starting to get bigger, more money was coming in, more students were coming in, and success with Christianity is always a problem, right? When you start getting successful, that's when everything starts falling apart, right? When you start getting to the, the part of your life that you thought would be the good part, right? Princeton starts having issues because now money's involved, people are noticing. Um, and he was concerned about the piety of the students. He wanted them to be interested in their holiness. Um, that's something that uh, we were talking about in Triple B the other day, about being interested in your holiness. Um, thinking about what it means to, to stop sinning. And that is at the heart of where B.B. Warfield was coming from. He had a sense in which he saw where this whole thing could lead. And it led that way. Uh, Princeton went, went liberal uh, soon after his death. Um, has anyone heard of 
Warfield's stance on evolution. Did anyone hear about that? Okay. If you go to the Creation Museum, <laughs> I believe there's a, there's a little write-up condemning B.B. Warfield for his view on evolution. Uh, and it's, it's only partly true. First of all, um, you have to understand in the late 1800s to early 1900s, this whole Darwinian thing was a new, was a new, new thing to the Christian world. We hadn't done the theological ramifications of what happens if you start accepting these scientific, well, if you want to call them scientific, these theories. All right? And so it's a little easy to look back, right? We do that with wokeism. We, we think about how woke we are today, and then we look back at people, you know, 80 years ago and say, why weren't they woke enough? Um, and then accuse everyone of being racist. But um, that's kind of what the Creation Museum did to B.B. Warfield. They, they said, why didn't he understand this, this, and this? Well, those developments came along like in the 70s and 80s. And, well, Warfield was dead. So, you know, we have to first understand where he was in his, the, the history of, of his time. He had a sense in which he wanted to give Darwinia, Darwinianism um, a, a, a serious look. He didn't want to reject it right away. Remember, he got his undergrad in science, and it was a very important thing to him. He was interested in that. But he didn't also want to take it full on because he understood the problem between science, uh, scientific theory that involves a lot of assumptions, none of which involves scripture. So he did understand that. So what he, um, if you remember, if some of you might know that uh, Hodge, A.A. Hodge, completely rejected it immediately. Which was a good call, but it wasn't a rejection of, I've sought it all out, and now I understand, and th these are the reasons. It was more of a quick reaction. And so Warfield wanted to say, well, then what, you know, what is this so I know what I'm rejecting? James uh, McCosh was another theologian at that time that was enthusiastically on board with Dar Darwinism, Darwinianism and said, we need to incorporate our theology into evolution. So he was, so Warfield said, well, I don't think that's right. So he was trying to carve this room between Hodge, who says, don't even look at it, let's just reject this, and then uh, Makash, who said, uh, let's accept it wholeheartedly, and he wanted to say, well, what's the thinking part in the middle? But he wanted to say that this is not a fact, this is a theory, and we need to treat evolution as a theory, not a fact. And that was interesting for his time, because that kind of talk was not around yet. Uh, people understanding science to be based on presuppositions uh, was, not a, was not big talk yet. You have to remember, uh, Kuiper was the guy that kind of developed that idea. And Abraham Kuyper, um, his stuff, he, he and Warfield were not uh, going to meet uh, with their ideas. So, so this was kind of groundbreaking, especially in Warfield's world. 
And as he grew older, it became, he became more and more skeptical of evolution, but that's only known by his friends because he just didn't talk about it much. He didn't write about it very often. And so his, as he talked about it with his friends, his friends reported that he became very, very skeptical about it because I think he was starting to get the theological problems that come from it. So one of the big things that happened in his life was uh, a controversy that came with a guy um, named uh, what's this? Uh, Charles Briggs. Charles Briggs was this guy that, that got uh, this idea of um, critical theory. And this is not critical race theory. It's critical theory in that uh, looking at Scripture and saying, what standard should I use to know whether Scripture's right or wrong? And so they use historical archaeology and they use uh, historical literature uh, techniques. And they decided, uh, a lot of these guys decided that um, the Bible is filled with errors. Uh, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. It had to have been all these different writers that had redacted, redacted, redacted over time. And uh, Ezra didn't write Ezra, obviously. All this is post-exilic stuff, and there's no way that these people that you say wrote it, wrote it. And so uh, it's also filled with so many errors that we have found with PhDs writing their dissertation. That, And of course you can believe that. And so therefore the Bible can't be trusted in its inerrancy. This can't be trusted. Um, it's nice for good moral teachings, though. And so, you know, let's use it for that. And this was at uh, Union Theological Seminary uh, took Briggs on and said, yes, this is the new scholarship. We must uh, reject Scripture in order to grab it. And so then there became this, this uh, fight between people who believed in the old school of inerrancy and those that believed in the new school of, well, we can't really trust Scripture, there's errors in it, which means, of course, there's errors in the confessions. And so now the Westminster Confession is a problem, and we need to interpret it in a different way. And this became the new school idea. The old school uh, was accused of inventing the idea that the Bible is inerrant. They are still accused of this to this day by liberals that say, no one thought of the Bible being inerrant until B.B. Until Warfield stood up, and that's what happened. B.B. Warfield stood up and said, no, the Bible is inerrant. It's not just for, you know, moral teachings. This is a book that has no error in it. And so he had to defend that, and he defended it in a paper that he wrote alongside with A.A. A. Hodge, and they, they really tried to nail down through the grammar of Scripture to demonstrate that Scripture, if you say that Scripture is not, uh, or if Scripture has error in it, then you have to reject all the major doctrines that we believe as well. And so he, he and A. Hodge worked on this, and to this day, that paper is still looked upon as the major paper for, for people to study the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, but this new and old school fight became a controversy 
that has uh, that split the Presbyterians. Uh, the old school and new school. Uh, the new school ended up becoming the PCUSA, as you would imagine. Princeton went alongside the PCUSA and agreed, yes, the confessions are problematic, the Bible is problematic, all these things are problematic, we can't, we can't rely on these things, or at least we have to interpret them very differently. Now, this is how liberals work. They didn't say conservatives are not welcome. They said, of course conservatives are welcome. You know, dumb people need a place to be too, right? And so they're welcome in our great umbrella of love and care. They just have to make room for us who reject Scripture. Um, and so, I know that's a harsh way of putting it, but I just don't know what else to say. And this, of course, happens in the New York Presbytery. The New York Presbytery. Now, uh, the PCUSA... Uh, which is part of that breakaway, you know, the conservatives broke away and then through a series of events ended up becoming the PCA. Um, PCUSA was the new school, PCA was the old school, kind of. And uh, the New York Presbytery, even in the PCA, is a problem again. Uh, so anyway, there's something wrong with New York. Okay, so... <laughs> um, what is, what is interesting, however, is the groups that came out of the New School. Remember, the New School is rejecting Scripture as uh, inerrant, and it's rejecting the uh, confessions as reliable summaries of God's Word. Okay? But there were a group within the New School that said, look, uh, let's not reject Scripture but I'm okay with rejecting the confessions. <laughs> All right? So two groups came out of the New School. One were, uh, ended up being called new, uh, the Evangelicals, and the other group was called Fundamentalists. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That was fascinating to me. Um, and so the Fundamentalists were ones that said, we need to say that Scripture is inerrant. We just don't want confessions. And because of that rejection of confessions, they were really born out of the new school of, uh, from the liberals. Uh, they just wanted that, they wanted, if I can put it this way, they wanted orthodoxy without a heritage. So they wanted to reinvent orthodoxy through, uh, through inerrancy in scripture. Um, and it ended up uh, just leading them to more confessions. Um, lots of fundamentalists, uh, institutions were born from fundamentalism, all of which, if you look closely, have confessions. Uh, if you were to go to Bob Jones University and attend uh, a, uh, a chapel there, at the very beginning of chapel, the students say a confession. My son could probably even tell you what it is. It's a I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God. It go, they go through this whole confession uh, at the beginning of every chapter. So what happens is you realize you can't have orthodoxy without a heritage because God is a covenantal God. Covenants require heritage. And so you keep going back to it. 
And what's great about the fundamentalists is that they, they did say, hey, let's include as many people that agree on these fundamentals. Which ended up being people that had confessions. Okay. Um, and so his highest accomplishment, I think, was his idea of uh, how Scripture is inerrant. It's still used today. Very helpful. Um, his wife, Annie, uh, died in 1915. Remember, B.B. Uh, Warfield dies in 1921, but six years later. You would think that when Annie died in 1915, the way that her, the way her, uh, her mental state had squelched Warfield's ministry and limited him quite a bit in how he can interact with students in the way he wanted to, obviously. You would think her death would have brought him relief. But what's interesting is how his own friends responded to this. Um, his good friend Machen, who ended up starting Westminster Seminary, uh, wrote a letter to his, to his parents saying that he didn't know how B.B. Warfield was going to function without his wife. He was really concerned about Warfield because he was concerned that Warfield was going to lose hope in life because his wife had died. Not that, oh, finally he's free. Right? And Warfield even was that way. He did travel more. Um, he was very limited in his traveling because of his wife, but uh, after she died, he traveled a little more, but not as much as you would think. And uh, Warfield, in 1921, had a heart attack, but started to recover. And as he was starting to recover and feel better, doctors gave him uh, the clearance to go start teaching again. So uh, on, uh, what day was that? I don't have it written down. The day he went back to go teach, uh, he, had, he taught his classes for that day, um, and the kids were all glad he was back. And He gave a uh, lecture on the book of Mark, I believe it was, and one of the students that were there recalled the wonder he had in his face when he was talking about God's works. And then, uh, that night, uh, when he went to bed, he had another heart attack but did not wake up. And what's interesting about Warfield's life is that he had, uh, he remained not just loyal, but... Um, kind to a wife that he could have been bitter towards. How do you understand someone who has a reaction to a thunderstorm that then destroys their entire life? Something, obviously something was already going, you know, wrong with her mind. But he could have become bitter. He could have put her away. Uh, he could have allowed her to, um, to cause him anger towards the Lord, uh, stopped his ministry completely, 
But what was honorable about Warfield was even beyond, I think, his writings and his work at Princeton was the continuing work he did with his wife. For even though she had created a world in which he was completely limited in his ministry, he did what he could. He was not embarrassed by her, but rather took care of her in the best way he could with the time he had and the abilities he had. He did not see himself as a failure because uh, of his wife's limitations and the limitations she put on his life, on his life but did what he, was a, what he was able to do with the time that he was given and proceeded to work in the church and in his ministry with what he could with the wife that he had. He was not upset, uh, he was not uh, bitter, but showed constant love for her even at a time where she most likely, based on what they think is going on in her mind, couldn't show love back to him. And he persevered, not out of a martyr's syndrome, but out of love for her. And that, is, um, that shows the kind of heart I think he had that goes beyond the intellectual world that so many people admire him for. Um, and I think that young men would do well to learn from B.B. Warfield's relationship with his wife than even the theological stuff that he wrote. Theological stuff is great, but if you could learn how to love your wife the way B.B. Warfield loved his wife, uh, that would be better. Um, let your pastor show you why we need inerrancy. Learn from B.B. Warfield how to be a, a man that is committed to a wife, even when it is difficult to do that. Um, so these were the things that I learned from B.B. Warfield that I did not know before, that I, uh, and even most uh, books on him will concentrate on his academic life. But if you can find one, the guy, and I can't remember his name, this is bad, but the guy that wrote the book on Van Til, his last name starts with an M, and I don't know why I can't remember his name, but um, he wrote the book, he wrote a biography on B.B. Warfield that I think is uh, helpful because he wanted to get into the heart of B.B. Warfield, not just his academic work. Um, you'll find that most books on B.B. Warfield are study his theological ideas and things like that. And that's fine if you're interested in that. But uh, this guy, whose name I can't remember, that does start with an M. What was it? Meether. Yes, I, that's how they pronounce it. I don't know why, but yes, Meether. It's spelled weird, so you're going to have to look it up, because I can't spell. Um, all right. Yes, it's German. So, you know, he's still a good guy. Okay, oh. <laughs> all right. I hope that's helpful to you, um, that behind these men are real battles that we face as well. They're not supermen. They're people that are used, and they have the same issues that we have, 
I want you to think about that because our church is not a mega church. We kind of hope that never happens, but that means we need help. We need people that are willing to be used. And I think sometimes we use, uh, we use excuses not to be used in church. Um, we think, well, once I get a better hold on, on my life, or once I do this, or once I do that, or, you know, we're just not there yet. Uh, if you look at the struggles that men who God used in miraculous ways, the struggles that they, that they dealt with at home, are the kind of struggles we all deal with in different ways with different degrees of, of difficulty. But please don't let that be the thing that holds you back from getting involved in your church, being committed to your church, and even the harder thing, which is being committed to each other. Um, don't wait uh, on, on that. Let your church help you grow, and you help your church grow. And I think that um, is one thing we can learn from these different men that we're learning about. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we will prepare ourselves for worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are excited today to be in your house. Lord, we, we anticipate what you will do in our hearts. Lord, help us prepare our hearts for what you will have for us, Lord. Let us confess our sins. Let us forgive each other. Let us be, have uh, clean hearts before you so that as your word is communicated through your servant, that your word uh, will bend our hearts to you. That your Holy Spirit will work uh, diligently in us that we might be broken before, what you, before your word. Lord, we ask for your strength and power on Andrew as he brings your word to us. Let that power be strong uh, and effectual in us as we hear that word. And Lord, let us apply it in ways that will change how we are with our uh, loved ones at home, how we are with each other at church, how we love our pastor, how we love uh, each other and our families. Lord, let us be a church known for its holiness and for its love. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.